0: You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Here today with my co-host, Steve Morrison, uh, we have Helen Branswell, who is one of the superstar reporters for STAT. STAT News, which is covering all things COVID-19 and and all life sciences, global health, biotech, medicine. Um, Helen, you've been reporting on this story, and really, as the New York Times reported, you were the ones who got this first. What's it been like reporting on this story as opposed to some of the other global health stories like Ebola, SARS, H1N1, Zika that you've covered in the past?
1: Well, first, I should say that I didn't get it first. I read it on uh, ProMed, which is a listserv that the International Society for Infectious Diseases maintains. It's a very useful listserv for people who want to stay up on infectious diseases. And I saw something that they pushed out late on December 30th. I read it December 31st. And thought, oh, this doesn't sound good. It reminded me a lot about the start of SARS. And so I started paying attention then. But it was because of ProMed. How is this one different than others? Well, <laughs> it's all around us. And it's much bigger than anything. You know, of the outbreaks that I've covered, a lot of them have been far away. And things that seemed like a potential risk to global spread, but not ending up, you know, involving global spread, with the exception of the 2009 pandemic and the flu pandemic, which turned out to be quite mild. This is not that this is kind of a once in a century event. And we're in the middle of it.
0: You wrote as recently as yesterday that ER doctors are telling you, the worst is really yet to come. What are you hearing from them?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, you know, the United States is so enormous. What's happening here is happening to different degrees in different places. New York is really in the throes of a major outbreak that is going to take a lot of lives. Other places are somewhat behind that. Seattle, of course, was ahead of that. But wherever this takes off, if people don't take the kinds of physical distancing measures that have been recommended... You know, the numbers start to climb and get to points where ERs can't cope. And we're starting to see like profound shortages of really critical material. Like, I just saw an alert from the Washington Post saying that the strategic national stockpile is virtually depleted. It's personal protective equipment. DHS
0: just reported this,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. So the PPE is gone, and we're really at the start of this thing. So what happens? You know, I talked to people in hospitals for that piece, people in hospitals in New York, Providence, Rhode Island, and Boston, and, you know, they're scared. They know something really bad is coming. They're trying to figure out how to deal with it and how to stay safe and how not to infect their families and how they're going to make the really difficult decisions in the days ahead. We're going to go through a bad time.
2: One way or the other, Helen, it seems like we're f- confronting a risk of health providers having to make really hard choices about whether to show up for work, and if they show up for work, really hard choices around who lives and who doesn't.
1: Yeah, I think that is conceivable. I haven't heard of people refusing to come to work, but again, it's a large country. I think healthcare workers in the main are like extraordinarily. Dedicated group of professionals, but you know, we owe it to them to protect them, and we are not living up to that duty. So, that's going to cause major difficulties, and people are going to get infected who we actually need to stay healthy. In terms of things like ventilators and you know, who lives, yeah, I I think that that's very likely on the horizon. Um, You know, in addition to the fact that there aren't enough ventilators. We got notice yesterday that some of the drugs that you need to keep a person alive on a ventilator, you know, the the kinds of drugs that allow people to be sort of safely maintained on a ventilator, they're running scarce. And again, this is only really the beginning. And, you know, we're sort of talking about trying to flatten a peak that's coming in the next couple of weeks. But in reality... This virus is going to be with us for months, years, and, you know, it's hard to sort of picture how the stuff that is currently out of stock is going to be replaced in a time frame that we need it in.
0: Well, let me just stop you there. What do you, what do you mean years, that it's going to be with us for years?
1: Well, we don't know what this virus is going to do, right? But it transmits really well. You know, it jumped right out of the box It didn't seem to have to adapt to people at all, it just took off and it's, you know, every person who gets infected on average is infecting 2.5 other people. People who are infected transmit before they have symptoms in the day or two before they have symptoms. During the SARS outbreak of 2003, for instance, people only really were infectious about you know, five or six or seven days into their illness, and by that time they were so sick they were in hospitals. Made it easy to contain that virus. With this one, people who are infected are still walking around and potentially having interactions with people and emitting infectious virus for, you know, a day even before they get sick. So it, it's really, really hard to contain it's really hard unless you do like this this full scale national lockdown type of approach that some countries have done and that the U.S. seems to be reluctant to do on a national level, but is increasingly doing on state and local levels.
0: Why do you think we're so reluctant to do this on a national level?
1: I don't know. You or people in Washington, you know Washington better than me. And I'm a Canadian, so I am looking at this from you know, with maybe different eyes. But I know in Canada, as in the United States, powers rest with states and local authorities in a lot of cases, and sometimes sort of national orders are more rare. Perhaps that's got something to do with it. There certainly seems to be a political divide in this outbreak with some people believing that the facts that we see before us are indeed the facts and other people believing that this is not anything more than a bout of the flu. And uh, I think that very dangerous message that has been circulated widely in some, you know within some communities is going to cost lives.
0: Let me ask you another fairly obvious question, but I think one that is on the mind of many. Why are some people getting the disease and they're just fine and others it's fatal.
1: So that isn't known you know that is like the 64 million dollar question. It is known from other coronaviruses that coronaviruses seem to cause more severe in the elderly. You know some things like flu have kind of a U-shaped curve where little kids and the elderly get really sick and the people in the middle, not so much. With coronaviruses, it's not like that. It's like a this line that is fairly low and then starts to sharply rise sort of above 50. So that probably has something to do with the state of the immune systems of the people in the older age groups. It could have something to do with, you know, either pathogens that they had experienced earlier in life or the fact that maybe, you know, kids and younger people have more recent experience with the human coronaviruses. It's not really known. But what is clear is that there are a bunch of chronic diseases that really increase risk of death, things like diabetes cancer, heart disease. You know, the rates of death are much higher in people like that. But but another thing that's important to point out is that at all age groups, there are deaths and it's not always predictable. You know, you will hear these tragic stories about 26-year-old or a 36-year-old who had no previously known health conditions contracting this and dying. And that's not clear the reason for that is not clear it might have something to do with how much of an inoculum they got when they were infected like if they got a big dose that could have something to do with it but what i've offered you are are theories they're not answers we don't have answers on that yet
2: i'd like to shift things a bit you've given a lot of thought and you've written extensively recently around what we've learned in watching what's unfolded in China and Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Korea, can you say a few things? One is, what are the really big lessons learned from the looking at those cases across those cases? And secondly, you've identified some scientific discoveries coming out of the work underway there that's a bit surprising, particularly around transmissibility. So if you could answer both of those questions, first with the you know, what are the big takeaways? And then I'd like to bring it back to what all of this may mean for the United States.
1: I think I would sort of almost meld those two things together. I mean, for me, the startling thing about this is that it seems that a number of countries are showing that you can actually affect the trajectory of an infectious disease outbreak involving a respiratory pathogen. I don't think people would have thought that was possible before. I certainly people think flu is not stoppable. But what these countries in Asia that you mentioned have shown and even what parts of, you know, the United States are starting to show is that if you Really try to persuade people to put physical distance between them, you know, them and others, and uh, limit the number of contacts, close contacts you have with other people. You can actually slow down the spread of a virus like this one, which makes you wonder about flu. I mean, certainly Caitlin Rivers, who's a infectious diseases epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins, she took a look at some of the surveillance on other infectious pathogens in Hong Kong, I think it was sort of looking to see if once the physical distancing policies went into place, if they saw a drop in things like influenza and norovirus outbreaks and that kind of thing. And indeed they did. So it, you know, it seems like that is sort of secondary evidence that, that you know, you can actually have an impact on how these things spread, which is is quite amazing. But it comes at a huge cost. I mean, those countries have been not locked down. Some of them haven't been as aggressive on the lockdown as others. I mean, Singapore didn't close schools, for instance. Hong Kong did. South Korea, I, I don't, think they closed schools, but they, you know, they've been testing very aggressively. So, you know, there's sort of three or four or five tools that they've been employing. Some of them have used like three, some of them have used a different three, but they are having success. And that is really impressive. The point that I would raise though, is all of those countries started doing this when You could buy masks and stockpile masks and other personal protective equipment. And so all of the photographs you see coming out of that part of the world, you know, health workers are in moon suits, you know.
2: They're protected.
1: They are protected, but that's not the scenario in many other parts of the world. And going forward, you know, it's, it's hard to see how anybody's gonna be able to keep that up because everybody needs the same PPE that is now running out in the United States.
2: Well, this gets back to the point you were making sort of at the top end. If we face this expansive pandemic in our country and elsewhere, coming up against these critical shortfalls that are so fundamental to permitting health providers to care for patients, What does that foretell? Does that foretell collapse? Does that foretell deep damage to a health system that is enduring for years? What does that foretell, do you think?
1: I think I am not a soothsayer and I don't have answers to those questions. I worry about the safety of health workers a lot. I think, you know, when this is over, there are going to be a lot fewer of them and they're going to be deeply traumatized and, you know, we as a society have to figure out how to help them come through this as best they can. You know, I don't know, I think Andrew asked earlier and I don't think I answered the question, but you're touching on it as well. Predicting what is going to happen with this virus is is really hard to know, but there's still so many of us who don't have any immunity to it that it's hard to sort of picture it sort of burning out anytime soon. I mean, should we get to a point where a lot of the world has been infected and there is some at least medium term immunity to the virus, you know, maybe we see a slowing, or maybe we see a situation where it goes away for a while and then comes back as a, you know, either seasonally in in winter, as some respiratory viruses do, or maybe it's something that, you know, is around at some kind of a level all the time and occasionally um, has a big flare up when there are a lot of susceptibles that develop. You know, that used to be the case with measles, even though, measles circulated every year there used to be big years and and maybe that is something that will happen with this but we don't know and it you know much will be determined by how quickly vaccines can be developed and and deployed
2: i want to talk a little more about what the future holds but but i just wanted to close on the question around overwhelming the health system and having these critical shortages when you look at what happened in spain and italy in the last month, whereas you had a fatality rate in China of about 3.4%, as I recall, in Hubei, in Hubei province. We're looking now at mortality rates in Italy and Spain that are either just below 10% or over 10%. And I take that as a sign that collapsed. In other words, that the systems that were there to respond are under such severe strain that the fatality rates skyrocket. Would you agree with that?
1: Well, fundamentally, yes. But I'm hesitant to accept that that those are the fatality rates. Uh, You know, currently, we have no idea what percentage of people have been infected with this virus. You know, there is the expectation, given that some people have extremely mild or pretty much symptom-free illness, that a lot of cases aren't being caught. So when you talk about case fatality rate, you know, we have to be very careful. It's probably not true that it's into the double digits if you're looking at all people infected. Um, Yesterday, there's a paper out of China that suggested that the infection fatality rate, which is sort of a better marker for the overall denominator of, you know, of the outbreak, that it is something like 6.6 times that of seasonal flu, big, especially given that So many people around the world are susceptible to it. But back to your question about collapse, I mean, clearly, yeah, I don't know the situation in Spain as that well. I do know that, you know, Northern Italy certainly couldn't keep up. And this will be seen. I mean, you know, it's one of the dangers and one of the reasons why people who think this is just flu or think this is being overplayed are really fundamentally misunderstanding the nature of this event, when health systems can't cope with an influx of patients, they also can't deliver other kinds of standard care very well. So anybody who is in a car accident right now, like a, a significant car accident, has a far less you know, good chance of surviving. Any woman who has a difficult pregnancy now or a dangerous delivery She's in greater peril. Anybody who's newly diagnosed with cancer and needs to go in for surgery and treatments and, you know, dialysis patients, I mean, all sorts of people who, the people who use the system day in and day out are going to get much lesser standard of care simply because the system can't cope. And some of them are going to try to forego care because they're scared to go in i was talking the other day to craig spencer at columbia you probably know Craig. this is he, the doctor he... that
2: came back with ebola and survived. yes that's, that's correct yes.
1: yeah and he was one of the things he said to me was i'm not seeing anybody with chest pain i'm not seeing anybody with abdominal pain emergency rooms are typically full of people with those kinds of complaints. And they're not coming in from care, presumably because they're too afraid to go to a hospital merge right now. But what's going to happen to those people? You know, some of them will end up dying and that will be, you know, they won't be tallied on the final list of how many people died from COVID-19 But they will be a part of the toll of this pandemic.
2: Helen, can we turn to sort of what the future holds here? Zeke Emanuel, Scott Gottlieb, they've each laid down recently some very concrete ideas for the future, trying to put a roadmap together that looks beyond the immediate crisis. We've done something similar just recently and laid down three scenarios that we published um, earlier today and shared with you. What's your thinking about the future and the critical questions that are going to come fast and furious in front of prominent decision makers, in your view?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, it's really important that people are thinking about this because, you know, we're just in so completely uncharted territory. We People need to figure out how and when it might be safe to sort of start to relinquish some of the controls that are in place and how to maintain the food supply you know at a time when people are frightened about that and frankly hoarding because because they're frightened about that and how to feed people at the lower end of the economic spectrum who will have instantly lost their jobs and, you know, are waiting for those promised checks, which won't go very far. And I don't think we have the answers in place. In China, they were delivering food to people's homes. We're not there yet. And we need to figure that stuff out. But in terms of going forward, you know, I think that there needs to be a Marshall Plan type situation that people need to figure out how to make PPE, how to devise ways to keep healthcare workers from getting sick, how to continue to produce enough reagents that we can test. Everybody says, especially the World Health Organization, that the key to getting on top of this thing is to know where it's spreading, but you can only know where it's spreading if you have the tests and you can only do the test if you have the reagents and everybody in the world needs that stuff now. And, you know, I, I worry about the supplies.
0: Helen, I wanted to ask you, you know, this is a epoch defining story that you're covering. How do you decide what element of this story to cover next day to day?
1: So I have a, a truly wonderful and very smart editor, and there are a number of them at, at Stat, and you know we work together closely. We Let's give about, a big
0: shout out to Jason.
1: Yeah, give a big, big shout out to Jason. But you know we try to figure out where we can make an impact. Stat is, I think we, you know, sort of reach for the cliches, but we're really punching above our weight. But we don't have a staff the size of the Washington Post or the New York Times, you know, so we can't drive in all the lanes. We have to figure out what makes sense for us to approach what we really think our readers need to hear. We like to put a lot of focus on stories that sort of summarize what we've learned so far, for instance, or look at questions that need to be answered. Those are really very avidly read stuff that sort of gets at some of the science of who's at risk and who seems to be at lesser risk. Those again, are are stories that really people are devouring on our website. Yeah, so so some of it's sort of what is it we think we need to know. And some of it, of course, comes from events of the day, like as the story evolves, you, you know, ideas emerge.
2: Where do you derive the greatest hope in this period?
1: Well, science is extraordinary, and I think that, you know, some ex- extremely bright people are working very hard to try to figure out if there are ways to blunt the infection once people get it and get become critically ill or to prevent them from becoming critically ill, and of course, the the work on the vaccines. I take huge solace in, you know, the dedication of healthcare workers. And, you know, you see and hear about stories of small kindness that, you know, I find really moving. But in terms of sort of hope, in the nearish term, I think we'll get through this, but, you know, there's a walk through hell. To be had, I think. I hope I'm wrong. I fear that the way the story is being messaged now to people that, you know, we have to stay home a little longer because the peak is coming in mid April. So, you know, the notion now is that we have to stay home till the end of April. If everybody leaves their home at the end of April, there's going to be another peak in three weeks after that. So I just think the solution to this is not short term but it's in everybody's interest everybody's interest to find ways to mitigate the damage and help people rebuild when it's over and i guess you know that gives me reason to think that it won't always look this bleak
0: helen thanks very much for being with us here today um, we'll look forward to reading your reporting and learning more from STAT on this story as it develops.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Thank you, Helen.